Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, episode 13. I am Adam Pawatic, and my co-host is Aaron Cameron. The podcast is brought to you by First National. Our guest today is Greg Peacock. He's the Managing Director of the Private Capital Investment Group at Collier's International, and we're going to talk about mid-market transactions today. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks for having me. We're, we're talking with Greg today about mid-market transactions. You know, that's primarily what his group focuses on, and it's also what you know Aaron and I focus on. And uh, you know, it's the bulk of bulk of our lending practice here at, at First National, so it's a good fit. You know, theoretically, everybody at the table knows something about this. Uh, but first, I would ask Greg just to give a you know quick background on you know his group and what he does, so we get an idea of how you play in the the mid market transaction arena. Yeah, absolutely. So our group, you know, obviously everyone sometimes confuses private capital with uh, capital markets. Uh, our capital markets group is very uh, institutionally. Uh, driven, uh, and many of their clients include the life codes, the institutions, you know, some of the banks, uh, many of the REITs, and you know, our group is a little bit of a spin-off of our capital markets group. So we're focusing on the mid-market stuff. It's uh, our client base consists of small to medium-sized businesses, high net worth individuals, family offices, and one-off investors in certain organizations. Um, whereas you know, it's, there's no real institutions in, in our client focus. Um, you know, what we're trying to do is is trying to help people run a very formal, thorough, and inclusive process to make sure they have a defensible strategy in place on a disposition. You know, typically many of our, you know, I'd say 50 or 60% of our uh, transactions involve generational owned assets that have been passed down from second or third generation. And, uh, you know, they enjoy the few hundred thousand dollars of income that they have on their property, but don't really understand the, you know, what they're sitting on. Um, so, you know, obviously Collier's, uh, very large brand, uh, $2 billion publicly traded company. We usually approach these groups and you know take a proactive approach in letting them better understand the, the potential, the long-term potential of this asset. And you know these are not hobbies, these are investments. So if we can leverage some of our ancillary services to help them maximize value on their, on their return, then, then everyone's in a better place for it. So can we, let's start at the beginning of the, of the process then, because I'm just kind of curious how you guys go about it. Um, Let's let's talk about prospects or identifying prospects. You know, when you're looking to find um, another sort of mid-market uh, family type uh, owner, real estate owner, how are you finding them? What kind of resources are you using? Are you are you googling or you know knocking on doors? What's the process yeah, for sourcing there's, there's these no prospects? There's no lying. Uh, uh, there's on the, on the brokerage side of the business. There's a, a lot of smiling and dialing. That's for sure. But no, I think it's it's different. Everyone has their own business model. It's a very entrepreneurial business. Uh, the brokerage side of the business. Uh, you know, there's, we have my team specifically has presence in every single asset class. So, whether you're in retail or whether you're in apartments and multi-res, you you know you kind of come up with your own game plan. No one really does. You know, people sometimes people pick an asset class and sometimes people pick a geographical area. You know, some people are more you know focused you know one deal to the next all along the same block, whereas someone else is you know doing kind of retail everywhere. Well, some guys have made careers out of. Just golfing with clients for a living, and other ones exactly. can uh, hit the phones all day. It's uh, you know whatever whatever works. It's yeah, uh, but I think you know any, it's, it's safe to say that anyone in their first five years of the business is spending a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time out there prospecting, proactive prospecting in the sense that even if there's not an imminent requirement, uh, you're coming in trying to you know put a name to a face and, and forge a long-standing relationship. So it's uh, these sales cycles are not happening overnight by any means. So. One of the benefits I would suspect working for Collier's is because they've got you know a wide variety of sort of tentacles out there in the marketplace. Is there some sort of cross benefit you're using with your, your appraisal guy saying, "Hey, I've just got approached to do an appraisal. You know, talk to our talk to our, our our market guys, our capital market guys." Yeah, being a large organization like Collier's definitely helpful. You know, I think there's you know especially an appraisal. Uh, is is a, it's probably the, the wrong example because there can be conflicting situations. Sure, yeah. Like, sorry, you give me a better example then. Yeah, but you know, what, you know where I'm coming at, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, you have 150, 160 uh, brokers here in Toronto based out of our three or four offices, four if you include Burlington. Uh, so it definitely helps if by having expertise and specializing in, in smaller, you know, it's our typical deal size would be anywhere from like kind of two to $20 million. Hmm. Is that how you define a mid-market transaction? Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, We'd agree that's, with that, Aaron. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's where we kind of see our deals. And it's not as much about deal size as it is, you know, who the client is. You know, given, you know, we have a, we have a great capital markets group right now too. So even if it's a $3 million asset, it's if it's owned by RealCan, uh, our private capital team's not going to sell it. And that's something we're going to pass off to uh, our capital markets group. guys. But it's just trying to control the marketing message and make sure we have the the right message to the entire community on which group's doing what. And Is it a two-way street though? Would they pass you deals in the other direction? It's actually yeah. probably benefits our group a little bit more than their group because, you know, if you're a capital markets uh, group and you're, and you're trying to sell on behalf of the big REITs and next thing you know you get caught selling a $4 million gas station in Stouffville, it's probably going to dilute your brand, whereas, uh, you know, we'll take that one on all day because there's certain guys that are doing suburban land and, and a bunch of different suburban uh, specialties. So I'd say it's almost the other way around. We're, we're benefiting the most from it right now. Okay. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I used to work at Collier's and Greg and I actually started around the same time. I think I got a LinkedIn notification earlier today that this is your seven year anniversary, seven at, year anniversary uh, yeah. at Collier's. Yeah. And I, that's probably right around when I started there as well before moving into lending. Uh, but can you just, just describe your first, uh, you know, couple of years in the business and how you got, uh, got going full steam? Yeah. When I started, I actually spent four years in another organization uh, tech organization and uh, in a similar sales environment. So, you know, for me, it was quite seamless because I went from in a business development role and pretty much it's the way you got to kind of start at Collier's. I was given a, a chair, a phone and a cubicle and I was lucky to get the computers, but in a way we went, but kind of spent the first two years working at Collier's North office, focusing on office and leasing. And a lot of the leasing I ended up doing was kind of midtown and downtown. So I ended up changing uh, offices moving downtown so I spent the first better part of four or five years focusing on office leasing got the opportunity as a young guy to work with a lot of great people in different areas and uh, learned a lot about just the you know the underwriting of deals of how you know leasing really creates the value every year I would do one or two investment deals and I was always going to say like I would love to do this investment I would love to do this and I felt like I was just so into the deal every time I did it uh, but when you're not doing it 100% of your time, it's it's tough to really win a lot of the business. Um, when you're you, gotta, you definitely got to specialize. So I finally had to make that you know leap of faith eventually. And after being downtown for three years and being five years in the business, I decided to uh, you know go full steam a couple years ago and just created my own little brand for myself and tried not to you know focus on certain areas pretty much assets that I, you know, weren't highly saturated. So, you know, you didn't really find me in, in King West. You didn't really find me down right in the downtown core and kind of built a two, three, four person team. And, uh, I think when it, when it comes down to it, it's caught the attention of, uh, a few of the executives and said, you know, this is a lucrative marketplace. It's, uh, it's an area where there's, you're not always competing. You're not always four or five pitches, you know, fees are not being compressed. And uh, so it really created a nice storyline. It was partially a rebranding exercise, but it was also building a, a platform that had it, you know, you designated analyst research, uh, different presence in different asset classes, being able to engage and take the other 140 or 150 or 160 brokers across Collier's as, you know, an ex, you know as part of your team and, you know, being able to them to bring you in on, on certain deals and them being confident that you can run the process from start to finish and making sure it's in the best interest of the client. Well, that's the big benefit of specializing. I remember you know, I've received business cards that say I specialize in industrial, residential, retail. It's, you know, it's, you're not really specializing in any one of them. But if you're known as the person doing you know, that market segment, people will think of you when it comes to partnering on deals. Yeah, it, absolutely. And I think it's also our platform lends itself well to you know, capturing the various buyer pools too. So, you know. Typically, actually, I'm probably jumping ahead here where you guys want me to go. So maybe I'll <laughs> no, it's okay. Go with the flow. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. Uh, you know, essentially where the private capital group really, you know, stands is, you know, we, we represent sellers. You know, we have the platform that and the track record and the experience and the network and the database now and just the global exposure, whether it be through our U.S. counterparts or our, uh, you know, European offices or, you know, offices in Asia that we can kind of, you know, showcase some of these investments. And obviously it's a, a lot of these people are looking at Canada as a very safe place to put money right now. And that, that may be a good segue. You know, I, I'm curious, you know, to see what you're, what you're seeing in this mid-market space on sort of the private capital um, from, from foreign investments, you know, I, to this comment about it's sort of not the, it's not a glorified, glorified area, right? This sort of two to 20 million. Yeah. You're not the big ticket items. You're not talking about the big office tower on the corner. Um, but are you seeing some some shifts? Are you seeing a, from foreign investment coming in from Europe, from Asia? 
Um, and what kind of trends are you noticing? You're seeing a lot of it, uh, like a lot of it. And they're on every single listing I think our, our group has had over the last, you know, call it 12 months, there's been some component of foreign purchasers at the table. Um, have they been the ones that have taken down the deal and, and been successful on it? No. Presumably not institutional foreign investors, though, at that, at that market size, or do you, are they sometimes, you think? They're present, and it's just maybe it's my own personal experience that they just haven't been as successful on some of the uh, dispositions that we've run. That being said, as a whole, you know, I think you find foreigners in general when you know they're looking. That's why you're seeing a big, you know, you're seeing a lot more office condominiums out there. You know, foreigners and immigrants typically want to own their own real estate. A lot of storefronts, retail, you're seeing a lot of more foreign buyers on those fronts. Um, it's affordable. And these are like the one and a half to three and a half million dollar transactions. It's our group is not as active in those type of listings, but yes, across the board, you're seeing more and more uh, foreigners at the table. I think, I believe based on Altus's uh, uh, 2016 numbers, I think foreign, which is crazy because there was another uh, article in the paper this morning that said it was, it was up a bit, but I think Altus's 2016 report had somewhat of a slowing of foreign on the 10 million plus deals. Uh, transactions, but all in all, yeah, it's it's there's more and more foreigners at the table. Yeah, I was reading an article this morning about um, just you know with Brexit and you know there's some just you know uncertainties what's going on in Europe. So there, there there's more foreign capital coming out of Europe now, and that that was sort of unexpected at the time. And you know, everyone's kind of looking looking westward toward Asia, but realizing that there's foreign capital coming from all over the world. It's not one specific continent or another. Yeah. Right? No, I think this morning's article in the Globe referenced. Uh, oh, was that that one? I can't remember yeah, what I was reading. Yeah, talked about a ton of stuff. It was uh, there's some really good examples in there. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, of course, we actually talked about this on a previous podcast with uh, Sean Hildebrand. Is the numbers and the tracking can be difficult because it's not always just foreign entities showing up with dollars from overseas. It can be brought into the country via family members that are landed immigrants, and so it gets a little a little convoluted as in what constitutes foreign um, foreign investment. But the big the big factor is, of course, is that they, they're valuing the real estate on different metrics. It can be safety of the economy. Because obviously here, you're not getting great cap rates compared to uh, places overseas, but it's just the safety. So they're valuing purchases on where cap rates are irrelevant. You know, it does make them a little more competitive. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, though, because it's going back to our team of, you know, let us, you know, kind of run a disposition process for you. One is to like, let's run this marketing campaign let's run it you know let's maximize the exposure of this through all of our offices globally let's put together some pretty market material you know every property has a, a story you know let's enhance the perception of that to take it to the market so you can extract every last penny from this but part of our job is not just getting the, the top dollar but it's, it's making sure we're managing the risk in these transactions so i think from our standpoint is you know when we are recommending to a vendor if it is a competitive scenario and you bring successfully bring all the most active and aggressive buyers to the table when it does come down to someone, you know, use five million as an example. Someone comes in at four million. Someone comes in five million. Someone comes at six million. You know, sometimes the you know, say the six million dollars is, is the foreign buyer that's you know new to Toronto that's never had a track record. So it's all, you know the, the four, five, six might be a bit excessive. It's a million dollar, <laughs> a million yeah. dollar difference. Easier but, for conversation you know, yeah, purposes. <laughs> you know, marginal differences. You know, you're sometimes going to recommend that you go with a, someone with a proven track record. That's you know, you know as a developer or an owner of, you know, several assets in close proximity to, to the one we're selling. So I think it's tough sometimes in that sense because you are, you know, managing the risk depending on the reason why you're selling it. If it's, you know, if it's, if it's urgent, then, you know, you got to make sure that uh, there's no false starts and you're making sure that, the, you know, you're, you're managing the risk and, and the deal is going to close. Even if, if it's through no fault of the, the property or the current owner, there is always a, a question mark when a property comes back to market three months later. So well, why did the last guy walk away? Even if it's because they weren't even equipped to buy it, they just tied it up, chewed up some of their conditional period and then failed to firm up on the offer. There's always a question mark in the marketplace about, oh, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of a stink on that property now. You know, it's better to do one clean run properly in order to, uh, in order to transact. Exactly. I have a question. I just don't know the answer to this. What what is what what's what's better? And maybe the answer just depends on who you're talking about. But when you you know, let's say you get a sort of a family owned community plaza with a variety of month month leases, and, and the owners maybe a, you know sort of a family owner, and he's like, yeah, no, I've had those tenants for a long time, never really felt like you know doing a formal lease with these guys. They've been here for years on a month month basis. Is that a better scenario for selling purposes, or would you go in and sort of consult this guy? And say no, no, get them locked in on five or ten year leases, and that makes it more marketable. What? Or does it just depend on, on what the asset is? I would say typically a rule of thumb is, to, you know, when people are buying it, they want to know the yield they're buying it at. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, you want that income there and you want that to be like that to be stabilized at least for a two or three year time frame. Because if it has redevelopment potential, you know, while someone's taking it through the planning process, they're definitely going to want that income. Uh, especially if you look at some of the buyers, right? Like when they're underwriting these deals and the you know, first two or three years are going through the site plan approval process, that income is extremely important for their own and their own investors' returns. That being said, given this market and how many users are out there, sometimes like, you know, we, we did a, we were underwriting a deal the other day and putting together an opinion and value for a group. And, and the consensus was that this is, you know, given the area, given the, you know, the proximity to transit, given the, the local demographics of this neighborhood that like this is someone would love, an owner user would love this. So it actually would be more beneficial if these, if it's an owner user right now, if they did, if they kind of tore up their own lease and said it was kind of there on month to month. And so having less income and less term in place would actually increase value of the building. Well, that, that's, I, I would look at it from that perspective. I'd rather see the, if I'm out there looking to buy a new, another retail plaza, let's say for, for purposes of holding, not, not redevelopment, uh, having month to month leases gives me more control to get in there, kick those guys out, maybe, you know, reposition the, the, the asset a little bit or do whatever, other than being stuck with, you know, a slew of two, three, four, five year leases where it's going to take you that much longer to maybe get, you know, reposition the asset. Yeah, across every asset class right now, all the buyers are trying to find ways to add value. And obviously, the first way they try to add value is reposition with new tenants. And yeah. so the last income, obviously, sorry, the, the last term left is going to give them the ability to kind of come in and, and reposition themselves with their own relationships across different retailers. And On the flip side, though, it's, it's, a, it's a pain to finance when you've got a whole bunch of one, two, and three-year remaining remaining leases right it's just from a, from a, from a lender's perspective i gotta put my lender hat on when I mean, that durability and stability of cash flow is king right so if i see a whole bunch of seven ten year leases like that you're golden if i see a whole bunch of two and three year leases i'm i'm a bit more hesitant or you know giving a totally different interest rate right yeah well that, to your point that's one of the reasons why when you're, you're speaking to various buyers and the first question is like can you have a survey and what's the income on the building and the third question is like are they willing to do a VTB? Yeah. Right? <laughs> They're always trying to make sure that they, they don't have to hold these paper on their books. Then, uh, and then there's the second, the fourth, fifth question is like, they hold, you know, you know, another form of a, you know, mortgage or whatnot, some yeah. type of creative financing, more of a short term. So like we've been part of a many transactions in the last kind of 12 months where there's not just one VTB, but there's two or three different forms of creative financing. Buying zero down. Sounds like a car payment, right? <laughs> yeah. Buying a car. So. Yeah, those aren't likely the the deals that we end up doing, but uh, and I know they're out there. And VTBs are definitely a larger part of the marketplace now. In the last couple of years, they've really uh, come forward as valuations have gotten you know so crazy, and income doesn't really support it in a lot of cases. So VTBs are definitely a necessary part, especially if you're uh, if you're a seller trying to achieve that top dollar price. You might just take a VTB for a couple of years and you know to make it work. Are um, jumping a little bit, or, or maybe on that same that same trend. Are you are you seeing any trends in the marketplace? Guys moving from one asset class to the other. Is there an opportunity in one of the asset classes, or maybe even location that makes sense that you think that has yet to be fully discovered or, or revealed by the market at large? To answer your first question, I think you're seeing way more groups that have typically specialized uh, be more opportunistic. People are diversifying across asset classes. The big, big trend I see out there right now is way more joint ventures. You see that at the institutional level. You see that at the private capital level. You see that at the family office level. You know, people are paying up for these various assets. And you know, if it is going to be mixed use moving forward, they're bringing in the different the expertise, uh, the expertise and specialties. Um, is sharing risk a function of a JV? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, you're seeing without naming names, you're seeing a lot of people go after. Some of the people, some of the groups that have the best OMB track record, um, in order to kind of you know get take some benefit from them, exactly. yeah, their expertise. And I've yeah. heard people say they would never have done this deal without this this person, or they've you know they've the reason the whole reason they've uh, were brought this deal was in order to bring it to someone else. And absolutely, I'd say the biggest trend I've seen is joint ventures. Okay, and what what is the profile of the buyers that are actually not necessarily showing up for these deals, but the ones who are ones that were winning these when these deals on the on the buy side when you're when you're reviewing offers after you know a successful run with one of your one of your listings who's actually closing on these deals who's winning the bids what's the profile i guess every asset's different some in some instances it's it's users that can just put a value on a property in a location that you know arguably doesn't make sense economic sense for that matter uh and you're seeing a lot of owner users and a lot of the stuff that we're we're doing uh, being successful 
I think in, in to, it's in the, to that question, I, I would also say that it's not who the buyers are, it's who the money is behind the buyers. And if you look at three to five year money right now, it's really tough to make sense of this GTA market. Um, whether it be redevelopment or whether it be just, you know, income based. I think you're seeing a lot of different, a lot of groups have, you know, that have longer term money. You know, there's some groups, there's many groups out there right now that have, you know, 10 year funds. 10 year funds can make sense of it. You know, you look at people that are trying to do purpose built rental, that's 15, 20 year money. So the successful buyers, the profile is, is longer term money. It's if you're going to go through, if you have three to five year money in a fund and the clock starts ticking on closing, it's really, really tough to make sense of these acquisitions. Hmm. And you see a lot of professional syndicators showing up, the guys that you know are going to have property and then, uh, and then they just piece out the equity before closing. Yeah, I think people try to do that. I think it was easier a few years ago. I think part of what we do, and you know, to take a step back of what we do again, it's yes, we help sell. It doesn't, you know, we help the private capital group sell. It doesn't matter who the buyer is. You know, if you're if you're selling this on behalf of Greg Peacock, and next, you know, every institution out there is looking to acquire it in a competitive scenario, it's our well fi- done. Our fiduciary, well done, Greg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our fiduciary obligation uh, lies with the vendor. Oh yeah. So yeah. part of us running the process is to kind of make sure there's no we, we extract every last penny from the property. So there's we're not leaving room for, you know, for someone trying to syndicate and, and you know there's not a lot of uh, margin there to build in fees and to make build it in fees, feasible yeah. for them. Yeah. What you do see is you see a lot of people try to off market tie up properties and then shop it, and it's our like that's the best thing we can ever walk into someone that's you know just gone through a. You know, 180 day due diligence period with a group that end up dropping it and it's like okay well yes a lot of people saw this but at the same time like this guy was this person or this group was was trying to kind of line their own pockets and it probably wasn't in the best interest of anyone here other than themselves you ever had a purchase sale agreements signed sort of mid-transaction like that's probably a bad case for you guys right where you you go and you try to find the, the highest bidder and then he finds someone even higher to, to pay him for it and he just flips the purchase sale agreement well yeah it's uh one of my first investment deals before being kind of specializing in the private capital was with someone who flipped paper but luckily enough it was at a point in my career where i was uh i was the one who was fortunate we were we were the one that actually bought the paper <laughs> um, so that was that was it was three four years ago. You, you so, see, so it. nobody was mad at you then. That's the yeah. Yeah. no. You know what it was? It was. Uh, well, they, is that was, not is the profile not? They t- it's an off market transaction, and they kind of take it on market afterwards, right? So yeah, quote it, unquote. Yeah, in, in a lot of instances, you see, you know, that's obviously an anomaly. But in a lot of instances, you see people assign. You know, half the time in these diligence is just for these groups trying to create new companies and move money and and have the right uh, have this in which fund it's going to be in and. You know what investors are going to be in it. So a lot of this, you're going to always see some type of an assignment. Usually, you know, usually. But I'm I'm talking like arm's length assignments, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's you know it's it's we try our best to make sure that that that's not even possible. Again, yeah, sure. Going back to uh, making sure if you're ex- extracting every last penny out of this property, then there's there's no real room for that. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons. That's one of the things we look at our group of of why you'd hire us. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of. You know, mid-market transactions in terms of what they represent from the entire you know, investment universe within uh, within Canada, what chunk of the market do you think that is in the the two to two to twenty million dollar range? On like on a comparative basis, comparing to the overall market, in yes, yeah. Well, any sense yeah. what the whole market, what the transaction, the commercial transaction market is like? What what is well, it on an annual like, basis? There's so many different numbers you can look at, but once you get into those, there's a lot of. Uh, Miscommunication on how many on the one to three million dollar transactions that are not on MLS. So mm. if you look at, it, I think the overall GTA market investment activity in 2017 was 2016. Sorry, was about 17.2 billion dollars. If you those assets that traded hands, you think? Yes. Okay. So I think if you look at you know a bunch of those smaller transactions, I think you're probably closer to 20, if not above 20. Hmm. The private capital component of that, um, based on our research and this is this is this is our research like day in day out this doesn't stop and we're paying lots of different groups to help us with our information um i'd say is you know it's close to 50 percent of that wow it's mm. close so you know you almost so like 10 lot. billion dollars of private capital dispositions in toronto in any given year now the last couple of years we've seen you know you know last year alone you know based on that 17 number that's probably about a close to two billion more than we saw in 2015. 
but it's a huge chunk of the market. Yeah, is there an asset class that would surprise us? I mean, I, I'm assuming apartments makes up the, the 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 biggest chunk out of that out of that number in that three to twenty million size. After the apartments, what would be next? Do you think what's the most the hottest asset right now? Well, based you know if you look at GTA apartments, that was you know one point two billion in 2016. So it's actually not it's not there, huh? Not that, that surprises big. me. Yeah, there wasn't now the volume is dropped last year compared to the, the previous years. The biggest thing is the storyline across everything is development and redevelopment. So, which is, people are buying it. Yes, it's an office building now, or it's a medical building now, or it's an apartment building now, but essentially they're buying this as redevelopment land. So that's the biggest, you know, you're looking at closer to 8 billion of that traded in 2016. That's a, that's, you know, that's a bit, a lot of that's urban infill hmm. or infill in general. Um, but some of that you're saying is with improvements in place, but just for the purposes of demolishing yeah. and rebuilding. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think that's the biggest surprise of like that's the, you know, everyone out there, whether you're buying or selling is there's nothing that's, you know, it's all about redevelopment or development potential. In terms of the the asset classes, going you said mixed use. So what would that primarily be composed of? What are they developing them into? Uh, usually with obviously re- retail at, uh, at grade and yeah. whether it be, uh, you know, purpose built above rental or office above. Um you know, even if you're looking at, you know, even if you're looking at a lot of these condos now, it's, you know, you got retail grade and maybe something on the second, third or fourth floor. And well, even if you look at midtown stuff, it's like, what do we have at Young and Bloor now? We got eight levels of retail being penciled in for uh, one Bloor. One, it makes a lot of sense for the pro forma for these, for these groups on when they're acquiring properties and, you know, you know, if you can get a few levels of retail, that'd be great. But, uh, yeah, I think you're typically seeing retail grade and some type of... Uh, That's a very sort of international, if not Asian, approach, right? I mean, if you walk around Tokyo or Seoul or some of those major major cities in, in Asia, there are entire neighborhoods of just eight or nine floors of retail, right? You can go into one building and there's a bookstore on the first two floors and then you know a shopping center on the next two floors and then a pool lounge on the, the fourth floor and then a restaurant on the fifth floor and then, you know, like a, just it keeps going and going up, right? Yeah. That's just by virtue of the of the... The location and the availability of land, but I mean, it's it's happening here too. I'm sure, right? Slowly yeah. but surely, it's new here, so I think a lot of people yeah. are skeptical of it. But yeah. it's, I'm sure, with some of the uh, people backing these deals, and there's a lot of smart people in the room when they're making these decisions. So, to see if they can actually convince people to go up yeah. eight flights for their retail. Yeah, yeah well, I'm sure if you put a Jack Astor's on the ninth floor yeah. or something <laughs> like that, that's going to have just sort of that general draw. No matter what, you'll get people up there. But Absolutely, it's you yeah. got to have something that's of of value up there. Yeah, so can't put a, a you know, a video, a, a, a video store or something like that. No. And everybody up there. Yeah. HMB yeah. on the top. Floor. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to work. <laughs> yeah. When the specific development that you're referring as well, they've done a great job of trying to give street presence to all the floors of retail to counter exactly that is that people are not accustomed to going up that far for their retail. So they've, they've had to go, go above and beyond and giving it street presence and glassed in exposures and giant televisions and everything they can to draw attention upwards. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be very interesting to see that play out in reality. And what kind of I'd love to see what kind of rents they're going to get on the seventh floor versus the first floor of you know, the first floor is at prime prime time Toronto retail. It does not get any better in terms of uh, geography. But the seventh floor, how much of a discount is that? Is it half? Is it a third? It's it's going to be interesting. Well, I think you're. I think the rule of thumb is you're normally just you know going by half as soon as you go up to the second level. So if it's you know what's obviously that strip from Young to, to Bay is the seventh richest retail strip in the world. So if you're at three three and change for net rents on on the basement there, you know by the time you get up to the seventh eighth floor, you know you got to think you're at twenty five fifty yeah. twenty five yeah. to fifty dollars net. <laughs> kind of uh, average average rent for uh, ground floor in the suburbs. Yeah, is there a, is there a location in the GTA that you think are it was sort of being uncovered that it's being you're seeing more action there now for redevelopment development purposes or, or just general you know try, trying to find yield that you thought you know maybe years ago it was just like a no fly zone. I think there's a lot of untapped uh, subway stops that are still have a lot of potential. Any examples? Well, if you look at a uh, you know Victoria Park and mm. Danforth, you know you're still a 25 minute you know shot to Union Station, maybe a 30 minute shot to Union Station. Um, you know, there's you know, from a commercial standpoint along there, it's, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Again, it's not going to be something that's you know gentrified over the next three to five years, but long term, I think there's a lot of potential uh, that far east. 
along the Danforth. And then if you look the same way along the, the Bloor line, you know, if you high parks, like unbelievable. Meanwhile, you get to Dufferin and, and Lansdowne and in those neighborhoods, you know, the, the commercial probably can, can get a bit nicer along there. I'm sure there's some stigma attached to a few of the uh, establishments Locations, along yeah. there that uh, hopefully are not there forever. But uh, I think, yeah, I think transit's a big, big thing. It's the correlation with, you know, the value of real estate and, and transit is go hand in hand. So uh, we've seen a ton of action along the Eglinton LRT. Right? I don't know if there's not a lot of not a lot of remaining land now available. Right? I think it's all been grabbed. And Aaron, up. just for anybody not from Toronto, do you want to run through uh, what that is? Oh yeah, of course. The um, the uh, there's a transit line along along Eglinton, which is sort of a east west thoroughfare. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, mid Toronto. It's probably about ten kilometers north of Bloor, which is our main subway line going going east west. And so this is the sort of the next addition to our our um, sort of slowly growing infrastructure, transportation infrastructure in the city. Well, it's an interesting node because <clears throat> typically that node is as you go east is an employment zone, and it's obviously very astringent. Uh, Into East York, you mean? Exactly. Um, But you see more and more uh, mixed use and res people purchasing, groups purchasing those lands. And obviously, they're just extremely confident that they can convert these employment zones, these sites. And the the city hates converting it for the most part. So you need to do quite a sales pitch to. Well, I think you're, you know, that's kind of the the thought. But I think you're going to see more and more of it. If you look at, you know, just to throw out some sites there, you know, the Wrigley site just. Uh, which is an employment zone at Leslie and, and Eglinton there just recently traded and that's uh, that's foreign res hmm. buyer um, they're the same group that also purchased the Grand and Toy site which is you know seven point not only seven plus acres of employment land but employment land that's has serious environmental problems and they're still acquiring it for for residential purposes you look at uh, Steve Diamond and Everyone that's part of the Celestica site, the 60-acre site mm-hmm. that, that Don Mills and Eglinton, you know, people are obviously, you see Steve Diamond go over there and, you know, everyone, you know. Yeah, if, for if those, to Adam's point, for those unfamiliar with the Toronto, the Celestica site, it's a, a sort of an IBM subsidiary office building that, I don't know how big the office building was, a couple hundred thousand square feet, I imagine, but only like two or three three floors. So just this big, wide, expansive sort of office. And massive uh, parking a lot. Huge parking lot right on sort of right on the, you know, just the cusp of the DVP in the valley there. And so it's a great, great site and massive. 60 acres is huge to find sort of the middle of the city more or less, right? Geographically, it's almost yeah. right in the middle of the city. And and now uh, soon to be on a, on a major uh, transportation line. Correct, yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see that. But uh, I think all these other purchasers just saw what they're about to do and convert it, and they're kind of jumping on the train as well. I actually got caught up in the hype a couple of years ago. I found a site uh, at Eglinton and Dufferin, which is uh, not the most economically prosperous part of the city, but it would be right where one of the stations was going in. And this gentleman was located between two large parcels of land, and I figured if anybody ever tries to assembly here, this is going to be the key to the key to the development. So I started talking to him. And, of course, he'd already uh, done the math backwards on what this place would be worth four or five years and priced it accordingly. He was trying to eat tomorrow's lunch today, so that's, that's where it died. It was, uh, that's where the deal died. But the, the rationale was, was, was sound, but, uh, yeah, I couldn't make a, make a go of it because his expectations were through the roof. You know, he thought he'd won the lottery by being located near a future subway station. Maybe he's right. Maybe he did. So I'll be interested to see. Did it sell? Do you know if it sold? I did eventually sell at a pretty crazy price, so he was he was kind he was of right. right. But then maybe the, made the buyer maybe the buy for a crazy price, and they'll be right in the end too when yeah. values there go up. So well, to your we'll question, see. like that's another neighborhood. If you look at like Eglinton or Saint Clair, you know West, those those are where you're focusing there. Those are I think those are still a lot of opportunity and a lot of upside still there. Yeah, because it's a pretty short run over to you know to uh, Young Street, which is the, you know the centerline subway for the city. So it's if you if you can stick it out for you know as, as Greg's saying a ten year time horizon you probably do quite well in there. And, and this is just my opinion because everything I do is you know urban close to transit so very very biased. But if you look at you know people going outside of the city and folks you know low rise there's no line but like the because of the green belt like low rise is the most profitable probably has the best margin in it without a doubt on um, on any development but just just not my world so it's, it's tough to me to uh, speak intellig- intelligently about yeah, there's still money to be made in Milton and Vaughn just oh yeah no yeah. absolutely not to be discussed on this probably, podcast today probably more actually <laughs> yeah do you ever deal with with off-market transactions or do you you try and stick to your process we try to stick to our process um, 
which we do, you know, probably ninety percent of the time. But sometimes, if someone wants to run a more discreet, which you know, obviously all processes are discreet, but because of like some type of sensitivity with uh, adjoining pro- or adjacent properties or some of the current tenants in place, um, or it's a very uh, selective buyer pool, uh, very like in a, in a niche space, like a high end medical or something. I would say most of the time we run, you know, we, we would do mo- we would do a uh, an on market, but even the ones we do off market, it's just a it's just a much smaller, more discreet process, but it's still an on market. You kind of just hit up the people you know are interested in this product and see if we can get a get a deal together. It's yeah. you know depending on like the what the current use of the building is. Sometimes there's only a handful of buyers, and it's just making those you know half a dozen people compete with one another, opposed to taking it out to the the whole market for it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to do an off-market transaction, right? Like that's really not your value proposition to your to the the, the, the seller in the first place, right? Yeah. Why they, would they engage you if they just want you to take it off-market, right? Yeah. No, yeah. our our idea is, is to see if we can get as much as many bids as possible. So as we're sitting there with the vendors and their lawyers' offices and, and going through the bids, that you know, if the most you know the more buyers and you bring to the table, you know, you create uh, obviously a much more competition and. Mix in a little bit of ego there with some of these purchasers, and next you know the price is really starts to climb. How much of a like? I know that the the buyer pool is pretty deep at that at that level. So how much of a feeding frenzy are you finding when you're doing a you know full production uh, you know sales process? When you get to when you get to bid date, how many people are there who are seriously interested in closing properties? A lot. There's there's a lot of activity. Um, what I would say though is you know more and more you come across for some for some reason. And, you know, without naming names, you guys know some of them that are even close by, but some of the, the best buyers in the city still find ways to, to do things off market. And you look at things pop up on RealNet or you just hear about deals that are done and a lot of off market deals are still being done. You know, there's a lot of brokers out there that build their business uh, platform and model off of off market transactions. It's a um, it's it's just easy to be done. It's probably a lot easier than what we do. Um, Representing but, the buyer, you mean? Yeah, a lot of representing the buyer. You know, it's you know running around submitting unsolicited offers on great parcels, and sometimes someone bought something for a few hundred thousand dollars in the '80s, and it can be worth eight to ten million right now. And you know, they're like, "This is great," but you know, sometimes not that our group tries to come in over promise by any means, but it's like let's just let's just test it. Like it's it's crazy. It's Canada's a great place to be. You know, obviously with the why take ten and when you get fifteen? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's not, you know, that's not quite the, the difference, but it's just knowing and, and being able to, you know, not always, you know, sometimes when you have generational assets, it's not everyone's on the same page. So in order to make sure everyone's on the same page, you know, make the decision, have a collective effort to make the decision and make it off having, you know, five to 10 offers in front of you. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's an asset, um, you're, you're marked for redevelopment because there an unsophisticated vendor might not understand the full value of the land once it's been redeveloped. Whereas cool. if you bring it to market as a whole, you're gonna get a clear indication because you've got you know, six or seven smart groups all submitting offers, you're gonna figure out the value. Well, that's just it. If you look at it this way, you just nailed it. Like when you look at it, when someone comes in and represents a buyer, they, their buyer goes and does a planning rationale with one of the major planners in the city. Their buyer does a building condition, their buyer does a building condition assessment and likely a phase one and maybe a phase two environmental if, if needed. When we go to these groups, and I can speak this, you know, across a bunch of our different um, groups within Colliers on the investment side of the business that, you know, will help these groups better understand the potential of their real estate by doing just that. You know, we'll go, we'll help them go through the, you know, put them in touch with the, the planners and engage them to put together some renderings or, you know, the, the massings and, you know, benchmark it against the official, the official plan and, you know, the uh, tall building guidelines or whatnot and different shadowing on on uh, you know, what the implications of that could be. And we'll also help them, you know, include in our data room on a, on a, on a disposition, like a building condition assessment. So these people can underwrite the you know, capital expenditures that are going to be needed over the, you know, the next three to five years. And we'll do the phase one from a financing perspective. So it open you know, yes, the, you know, the big developers out there don't necessarily always need it, but, you know, to make sure that we create more Competition, then you know a lot of the people are going to need a, a, phase, a phase one, one. for financing purposes. Yeah. You guys would know best. It's it's yeah. definitely a prerequisite. I so. always find that funny, right? That that our we get you know acquisitions and, and the buyers saying, ah, what do we need a phase one for? And it's, you know, 
why would you ever want to buy a piece of real estate without knowing what's down there, right? Because that can just has incredible implications on the value of an asset or the amount of money you got to put into it, right? And it, it's um, it always curious to me that some guys just don't think it's that big of a deal, especially if it's you know, something suspect like a gas station across the street. A lot of people will walk that property and say, "Well, I don't want to put in a conditional offer and spend the money to find out it's potentially contaminated." But if you provide a clean report up front, it just clears their mind. And then they can focus on the value of the property. Yeah, absolutely. Greg, what do you find is motivating sellers in this market to to actually transact? Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think everyone has their own uh, motivations of why they want to sell. Uh, personally, our group's been part of many instances where the first generation is going through estate planning, and they're looking to um, you know start to to deploy a certain capital in certain ways. And I think they've thought they have a genuine opinion of that they this investment has been realized and it's, you know, they bought it at X and it's, you know, it's 20 times that now it's, it might be a good time to sell. It's more people typically pessimistic that they've, you know, they think that they might've hit the height of the market. So the timing is perfect. And in order to do their kind of estate planning, you're seeing a lot of other people, like, you know, a lot of small to medium sized businesses that we're working with are, it's just, it's a function, the, the, the real estate is a function of their business. It's, it's without that business in place or that business still doing the same thing it did 20 years ago, then there's no real, no need for that, for that real estate. They, they did it as a business owner. They did not do it as a real estate investor. And they've since seen, obviously, an, a tremendous uh, increase in the value of the real estate, so have decided to sell. Uh, more recently, uh, with the liberals in power, uh, there's a lot of noise around the capital gains inclusion rate uh, potentially being changed. You know, as early as uh, the next few weeks. And uh, so, can you elaborate on that a little bit more, just just for our listeners? You know, what are they what are they changing? What what is it, what is it today? Well, capital, and what are, where are they where are they you know estimating it will go? Yeah, well, I think uh, I forget the exact years, but I uh, when it was changed, but uh, I want to say 2000 maybe. But in any event, the uh, the capital gains uh, inclusion rate now is 50 percent. Um, so essentially 50% of 50%. Um, so people are paying roughly like 26, 27% and on, on a sale of a property into taxes. You know, if they change uh, that up to you know, 66% or 75%, which is, you know, has been done in the past, you know, that would mean, you know, closer to 40% of would be taxable. And I think that's scaring a lot of people and there's a lot of noise out there right now. And a lot of the noise is coming from, you know, I can without naming names, like top four or five accounting firms uh, in Canada. Um, so these, you know, it's, it's just, I don't think it's going to happen personally right now. Just there's a lot of, you know, look at construction and, and real estate in general. It's it's a huge component to us being the green on and from an inflation and GDP standpoint. So, and with so much political and geopolitical like uncertainty right now, I think you know, people are going to, you know, it's Canada's a safe place to be right now. And I think it's, uh, I'd be shocked if they did it in 2017. That being said, if they don't do it in 2017, you know, 2018 is a different story. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be catastrophic for the industry for a period of time. That would be that would be um, it, would, it would obviously drive a lot of sales in a short period of time, and then it would freeze. There would be a it would be a period where nothing would happen. Yeah, I might be. Uh, it happens next week. I might be looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> and to go back to your point about uh, intergenerational transfers of real estate being a driving force behind sales. It's something that as a, a, a real estate person, I can't understand. We see it a fair bit where people say, well, yeah, my kids don't want this asset. And as a real estate person, I think, why would you not want to hold that asset? But of course, you know, if you're not interested in real estate, you're not interested in real estate. If you're not interested in running your family's apartment building or collecting rents in your retail center, you're not going to be into it. Um, but again, yeah, if, if they do get out of the market now, odds are, may not be the peak, but it's probably not the wrong time to get out either. You know, it's if you, if you miss miss another fifty basis points compression in and uh, cap rates, you still did pretty good getting out now. Yeah, yeah. Who knows if it's the right time, but it's certainly not the wrong time. I guess the best way yeah. to put it, right? So, yeah, I, w- I would say you know, just my personal opinion. Our approach is never to to go in there and say now's the time. Here's the crystal ball. Yeah, you just because get, you, know, you know, as all pretty young guys in this room, you, you look at it and if you know. 20 long-term money and you know Toronto like has all the fundamentals to to continue you know, being very optimistic of you know of immigration and you know, all the political and geopolitical like uncertainties around the world I think you know I think we're doing a lot of things right here and um, I think that's going to be bode well extremely well for real estate moving forward and whether it be five years or 20 years so yeah I would never be one of those kids not interested I'd be like hold it <laughs> take the cash flow and we'll worry about this down the road but uh, let's lever it yeah, up lever it up and expand <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to each one's own 
Greg, if you were if you were to go back in time, this is this is our new question for 2017, where we uh, try and get people to you know give up a little of themselves and uh, more personal touch. Our 2017 question is: If you could go back in time and give advice to you know seven years ago, be starting at Collier's, uh, what two pieces of advice would you provide to a, a young Greg Peacock? It's uh, it's funny that you ask that question because it's it's something that I finish off immediately with a lot of unassuming money out there and people have built you know real estate empires and very under the radar and it's one of the things I always ask people on meetings I'm like you know what do you recommend to a 35 year old that's you know trying to you know, get involved in his own investments in real estate and so I ask the kind of question so it's a, it's a great uh, it's a great question but to answer your question um, I guess the two pieces one would be I was very scared uh, early in my career of asking stupid questions very scared and I feel like the faster you ask stupid questions and flush those out the, just the more confidence and the more knowledgeable you are at, mm-hmm. you know, younger in your career um, asking stupid questions pretty much is, is the only way you can pretty much learn in any business for that matter But mm-hmm. so that would be one and then I think really just aligning yourself or positioning yourself or surrounding yourself with you know someone who you aspire to be it's if you look across the room whether it be at another company or within your own company and you're like that person is like who I want to like you know emulate everything they've done I think the faster and the closer you can get to those people and surround yourself with them and uh, a from a learning perspective but just yeah I think it's I think that's really important to absorb their nature you exactly. know what I mean half the yeah. time you learn through osmosis anyways and it's just organically that you can kind of uh, you know figure it all out and I think if you're in the room on those conversations with those people it's uh, it's gonna be that much more beneficial to your own career I have one more too, and this was unplanned, but I just I'm just curious because of your your scope and everything that you see. If you could buy one asset class uh, in one location, what would it be? I'd probably buy a some type of street front retail that had a you know like a hundred by a one fifty lot corner type thing in an area that you just wouldn't even think to be. It's transit oriented, yeah. but yeah, I think it's if you start at the corner and it's something that you can reposition the, the tenant over the next 10 15 years, and you can have the I think that's where that's the, the new opportunities are. Yeah. Well, I think retail, I know it's we're getting to the end here, but I, th- I think retails you're going to see a lot of different areas of retail that are going to suffer, they're not going to be able to get the same type of nets they're, they used to be able to, yeah, especially the large spaces. Yeah, there's only so many shoppers and LCBOs and banks out there, and even the banks are, you know, getting rid of a bunch of the branches. You know, and those are the covenants that people want, and it's the covenants lenders want too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It makes, it makes it a lot easier. But yeah, I think probably some type of street front retail with a with a sizable lot. Good out in uh, out in Victoria Park or one of the, the other maybe, areas. Maybe not that far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's more of a 2025 year horizon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be the forefront of gentrification, kind of. <laughs> I want, uh, I got two kids, but I want, I want to see some of the money. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I want them to see some too, but yeah. That's funny. Um, okay, on to the news. I've got one article that I thought was interesting. Um, that we, I've mentioned this on multiple podcasts in the past, and, and it's uh, it's just it's a fascinating item to me. It's this sort of concept of de-stratification and, you know, um, de-stratification meaning, you know, taking condos and removing the condominium or decondominiumization, if you will. It's a, like a complicated word, but... Uh, you nailed it, though. <laughs> yeah, out, out in BC, out in BC, stratification is the same thing as condo titling. So they have this de-stratification concept in BC, and you're seeing developers sort of take advantage of this, and, and the logic is they have to get... 80% of you have to own 80% of the condo units in order for you to be able to de-stratify and you are effectively um, forcing the remaining 20% of the units to be sold or to purchase them. Uh, and so so the second one has now occurred. Um, they, they, this is a developer in, in BC that's taken this uh, condo uh, corp or the condo corp themselves have sold more than 80% of the units to the developer and now they've got to go to the British Columbia um, Supreme Court for approval and what's interesting about this one the first time they went through it was like 97% of the condo units had been sold um, and there was like one or two units that were the holdouts right so uh, these two units are basically saying I don't want to sell my unit but the condo corp is saying well too bad we're above 80% so we're now selling all of the units and there's a market um, there's a market uh, transaction to it or there, there's a, a process where they, they take the units to market uh, to make sure they're, they're 
they're being offered at, at, at market price. In this particular case, so this the second uh, destratification case that's gone to the BC Supreme Court, it's only 83% uh, of the condo units have been sold. So there are actually nine unit holders holding out and unwilling to approve the sale of their unit. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the BC Supreme Court approves this and effectively forces nine uh, nine condo unit dwellers out of their out of their units. You know, and we, we were we were talking about this with Greg before the before the podcast, and it hasn't really occurred. I mean, I, I think Greg would know it hasn't really been occurring in, in Toronto. I, I believe my understanding is we have the same rule as that 80, 80 20 rule, where at eighty um, percent, the, the the condo uh, corp could, in, in theory, sell the remaining units. Uh, but there's just no need for it in, in the GTA. There's still enough you know, land and repositioning, redevelopment land that's available. And, and obviously in Vancouver, um, they've just they, they've 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 taken all the low hanging fruit. So the next wave is you know in the downtown Vancouver core to to find older sort of 1970s 1980s condo buildings that quite frankly need a lot of work to upkeep. So I think the condo units are saying, well, well heck, I'll get out of here. I'll sell this thing and it'll save me a whole bunch of special assessments to replace the roof and replace the windows or or whatever the case may be. You know, but these developers in, in in Vancouver and BC have obviously identified this as the next wave of ways to to, to achieve their yields, rather than building in Surrey or Port Coquitlam or, or where have you. And partly a function that cap rates there are in the mid twos, and every other market in Canada is going to be you know mid fours at best. Correct. So you, yeah. you obviously you need a. They're operating on a totally different sort of economic assumptions for sure. Yeah, you need a very a very very sweet cherry at the end to go through yeah, well, Supreme yeah, when Court you, when challenges. You can sell things if you can perform it at 1500 per square foot that's different than sort of the Toronto market where we're just starting to see sort of a thousand square foot sales right so great I also wanted to thank Bradley Palmer he's a listener to the podcast and he reached out a couple of weeks ago to Aaron and I he's a president of the MBA real estate club at the Ivy Business School and he invited us out there to speak so we drove out there just last week, did a presentation, met a lot of people in the class, made a great experience. So thank you, Brad, for reaching out. We, of course, want to thank our listeners, as always, for listening. If you like it, you know, please subscribe on iTunes, uh, tell a friend, connect on Facebook or, or Twitter. And last but not least, we want to thank our guest, Greg Peacock. It was very informative. and appreciate uh, your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for, for coming. Me. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.